Thank you for joining us for another episode. My name is Nell, co-founder of Femex Columbia and your host of the Venturing Voices podcast. Venturing Voices provides a platform for women entrepreneurs in South Carolina and beyond to share their story about what made them the badass leader they are today. Today, we have a fascinating episode featuring Amy Barch, founder of Turn 90, an organization based in Charleston, South Carolina, that's mission is to improve recidivism rates here in the state. The National Institute of Justice defines recidivism as criminal acts that result in rearrest, reconviction, or return to prison with or without a new sentence during a three-year period following the person's release. The organization wants to better understand how someone can re-enter society after spending time in prison, and they seek to provide resources to make that transition smoother. While this problem is not unique to the state of South Carolina, the type of work Amy is doing with Turn 90 has offered a fresh perspective on how men leaving prison can truly be served and prepared to succeed. Recording from the Femex co-work space in Columbia, South Carolina, this is Venturing Voices. a nonprofit called Turn 90. I'm the founder and executive director, and we work with men who are coming out of prison. We run a social enterprise, which is a screen printing business, and we also have a therapeutic aspect of the program. So we run really intensive cognitive behavioral classes that create a full-day program for the men that we serve to be engaged in. It's a fully paid program. So the men are paid for their time, both in the cognitive behavioral classes, which are daily, uh, and also to work in the print shop. And then we have a case management aspect of the program. So the guys are also getting individualized support while they're here. And after their time with us, we place them into jobs in the community that have livable wages, benefits, and opportunities for advancement. Did you start out with this vision and this model and and build it from there? Or has it kind of evolved over time as you've seen the needs of the population you're serving? Well, I have wanted to work in prison reentry since I was in college. So I think that's a little bit unique that I've pretty much not wavered. And so I've had a lot of ideas along the way. So it's hard to say whether like the whole thing was sort of pre-planned, but I was looking back. It's on my early notes not too long ago. And I had written down things like internships and you know, um, you know, job training, job skills, you know, and so I do think that there were, were sort of nuggets, right, of this model that I had had early on. Um, and I say early on, that was probably about 15 to 18 years ago. The program definitely is an evolution. We didn't start out with a social enterprise, started out teaching victim impact classes where I was bringing victims of crime into the jail. And we were take, we were approaching the classes from a restorative justice approach. So talking about how crime impacts individuals um, that are incarcerated, uh, victims of crime, and the broader community. That kind of transitioned into me working more in the cognitive behavioral um, therapy space. And then I was for a while integrating those two curriculum. And then I moved more into the cognitive behavioral piece. And then uh, I moved into working with people once they got released. And then after a few years of doing that, we, I moved into the social enterprise. So it's definitely, it's hard to start a social enterprise, I think, on day one. And when I say that, we started by hiring like one student, like one of yeah. students, like one participant. And then eventually we hired two. And then eventually we hired three. And so now last year, for example, we hired 50 men out of prison. 
now we hire every person that we work with comes and actually is employed here in our print shop. Amy's life as an adult did not immediately head in the direction of addressing prison reentry. She did not attend college immediately, but the journey that that decision took her on instilled in her a sense of drive and determination that has paved the way for her program's growth. I grew up in a very, what I consider a very privileged environment. I have an awesome family. We've always been close. We're still close. My mom was a homemaker. My dad uh, was a doctor. Um, He's retired now. Very much a sort of traditional family. Yeah, I feel like I had all the opportunities when I think about all the, I did horseback riding, I did tap dancing, I played instruments. Um, I didn't know anybody who went to prison. That was just not part of my childhood. I was never exposed to anything like that. But I think I just always had, even from a young age, I can remember sort of being concerned about, you know, social issues. Like if I saw a homeless person, I just always felt concerned about sort of humankind. I don't know exactly how to say it, but I do remember from very early ages being kind of concerned about people that didn't have as much. And um, when I got a little bit older, I was kind of a wild child. I, um, people, I guess my mom would say, right, I was a handful. I kind of had my own idea about the rules and how I wanted to live my life. And I thought I was going to leave high school and not go to college. I thought I'm not going to be, you know, corporate America and I'm not going to live my life according to sort of principles, right, of needing to buy things and consumerism. And I'm just going to listen to Bob Marley and travel around the world. I decided to get a one-way ticket um, to Europe by myself and just bum around, which I did. And after about six months of bumming around, I kind of decided, you know, I think I want to do something that's more meaningful with my life than just, you know, camping and, you know, hanging out and partying and seeing the world, which was fabulous. But I was 22 and just thinking maybe I want to do something more. I asked my parents and they gave me the money for a ticket home. And I got a ticket home and I just said, I'm going to go to college. And I think I'm going to do something in in either social work or law. So I came back focused and I feel like I really needed that time away. And I really needed to sort of live life on my own terms for a little while. And then when I came back, you know, I was, I was focused. I wanted to, um, enroll in the University of Washington. I really loved their program. They had a law societies and justice program that I felt like really fit me and my interests. It's a new program there. And so I applied to to college and I didn't get in. And it was the only school I applied to. And so, you know, most people would just say, oh no, I guess I'll have to apply someplace else. What's my plan B? And I just kind of like dug in and was like, no, I'm going to this school. And I out that if you get a community college degree from a Washington state school, you can just automatically transfer in, but you also needed a letter from an employer saying that they had asked you to come out there. They needed you to work there. And so I orchestrated this whole like back end, you know, strategy to get into the university of Washington. And I moved out to Washington, uh, got a two year, I got a community college, um, degree from Seattle central. And I got a, um, a letter from my employer and I got in. And so I went to the University of Washington and yeah, I feel like that really changed my life. The Washington Innocence Project based out of Seattle, Washington is a team of lawyers and advocates that work to exonerate prisoners that have been wrongfully convicted. It was originally a product of the University of Washington School of Law, but has since become an independent 501c3 organization. This program, as well as interning at local jails, shaped the direction of her career. I thought maybe I wanted to become a lawyer and work with people who were wrongly convicted. 
And that kind of got me interested in, you know, working in the prison system. And I took some classes um, and I got exposed to some of the statistics around our prison system and, you know, disparities in our prison system. I had to do my internship in the King County Correctional Facility, so basically the local jail. And it just blew me away. And the people that were there blew me away in terms of the men that I was working with. Um, and I just decided I wanted to dedicate my life to that. And so I just never looked back. Amy had a tough time entering the job market following her graduation from college. She thought that she wanted to be a lawyer, but that path did not play out for her. Still determined, she looked for other ways that she could get involved in this work that didn't require law school and passing the bar. This goes to show you that you do not need to have the highest degree possible in order to make an impact in the field that you wish to enter. This dedication continued over the years, and with time, she started seeing her vision become a reality. It was kind of a slow evolution. When I got, when I graduated school, I graduated school in 2006, University of Washington, wanted to get involved and in, wanted to get into the field, got out. It was a really terrible time to be looking for a job in general. There was a recession going on, especially in, well, I think in, in the, in my profession, a lot of people who had gotten law degrees were not able to get hired the way that they thought they were out of law school. And so they were taking the kinds of jobs that I would have been qualified for not having a law degree. So it was really tough to get into the field at that time. It was another barrier. Just getting into the field was really, really tough. My first job in the field out of college was at an organization called Opportunities, Alternatives, and Resources in Fairfax, Virginia. And I interviewed for a case manager job and I didn't get it. And I was devastated. Um, and I remember about, I don't know, a week after I didn't get that job, I thought, you know what? I'm going to call them back up. <laughs> and I called the lady who interviewed me and I got her voicemail. And I remember saying, um, I still remember her name was Latasha. And I said, Latasha, listen, I know I didn't get the job, but I will always want to work for you. And if you ever have another available position, please call me and please keep me in mind. And she did. She called me maybe four months later. I interviewed for another position there and ended up getting it. And so it was just like even tough. Like I think about even just like those critical moments in my life where I just made the extra effort to really try to put myself out there and go after what I want. And that was the first job I got. And they were very much a, and I, I appreciate that organization so much. They're the ones that taught me the victim impact a curriculum that I taught. I started working with in jail at that point, not just with people outside running a caseload. Um, but I also saw the, the problem of the revolving door that we did a lot of sort of band-aid work. We were providing um, bus passes and we were providing backpacks and clothing. And it was really, you know, I, it's not like I'm trying to minimize that service because it's important, but I also just saw the revolving door and the depth of need that people were having outside of prison and the recognition that unless we did something more, we we're not going to be fixing a problem. And I really, I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't understand it at the time. And now that I'm farther away from that experience, I understand that what I was feeling was that typical reentry services are addressing the problems caused by somebody going to prison or going to jail, but they're not addressing the problems that people had that led them into prison or going to jail. Right. And it took me a long time to actually be able to pull that apart. I just knew that I wasn't, we weren't doing enough and I wasn't doing what I wanted to do in the space. And then I couldn't find anybody else who was. Um, and that I felt like we needed to reframe the way we were looking at reentry services to go beyond just, you know, addressing the problems coming out of prison by helping people address the reasons that they went to begin with. So that was kind of the first, I think, step really, even back then of me 
deciding to start on my own nonprofit or, you know, an initiative that I felt like was truly reflective of what we should be doing in reentry. Um, I worked that for that organization for many years. I moved to Charleston in 2010 and I couldn't find anything. And I still didn't have really any inclination that I was going to start a nonprofit. It wasn't the dream, a dream of mm-hmm. mine. Um, I was working at, for another organization and I just decided to start volunteering in the jail just because I wanted to stay involved really. And I was working at the volunteering at the Charleston County Detention Center and uh, running classes, both victim impact and cognitive behavioral classes for people primarily sitting and waiting to go to court. Um, about 80% of our population in our local jail is, is, is pretrial, meaning they're, they're, they have active charges and they're waiting to be sentenced. One day I got a call that, um, that's, that basically summoned me to come down and um, meet with one of the federal judges. And I was a little bit nervous about why I was getting summoned into a <laughs> judge's chamber. And, but I showed up, of course, and uh, I had a meeting with, with um, a federal judge here who basically said, I just wanted to meet the person who was behind, you know, the, the certificates and the men in my courtroom who were talking about what they're learning. And wow. he basically said, I've been doing this a long time and I've just never seen anything like the transformation that seems like it's happening in your classroom. And we just started a relationship and he basically really encouraged me to think about starting something that was more than just a volunteer uh, effort. And he said, you know, I'll do what I can to help you. And he did. And I quit my job and I kind of thought, I kind of gave myself two years to kind of get it started. I decided to wait tables during that time to kind of get the bills paid. It took me three years to get a paycheck. So I waited tables for three years, um, 2012, 13, and 14. On Valentine's Day of 2015 was my last day in the restaurant. That was my first kind of, yeah, I was able to get the city of Charleston was my first sort of official funding partner. And I was, they gave enough money that I was able to actually quit my job and hire somebody at the same time. Prior to that, I was a fiscally sponsored project by the College of Charleston. So I started out with a fiscally sponsored project um, during that time. So like I said, a really like really like basic, you know, startup from a volunteer to, you know, a fiscally sponsored project to an actual 501c3. Um, So, you know, it truly is a story of coming from zero dollars to where we are now, which I think, you know, was really, really painful um, doing it that way. But I think was it is one of my biggest advantages, honestly, in so many different ways. It's been such an advantage to me to have to have to have come from nothing. And when I say nothing, what I just mean is zero dollars. I mean, I've had tons of support. I have family support. I have the privilege of coming from a very stable family. And all of that has really, you know, allowed me to be successful. We have more coming up. So stay tuned following a short break. At Femex Columbia, we are all about supporting visual artists, and so are our friends at Flock and Rally, a fantabulous women-owned marketing and communications agency. Recently, they gave us a couple of golden nuggets of branding and PR advice to share. Very often, the difference between a sharp, polished brand or campaign and something that feels half-baked or outdated is, that's right, an investment in the visual arts. Yeah, your message is key, and that's a whole other conversation, but as digital platforms continue to grow, an experienced, savvy, creative team can convey the visual look and feel that best expresses what your organization is all about. 
that goes well beyond just having a simple logo. Great branding incorporates icons, patterns, and background elements for your website, collaterals and signage, as well as fun stuff like infographics and illustrations and guidelines for creating a consistent look for things like your Instagram stories. And what about photos and videos? Even though mobile phone cameras are pretty sophisticated these days, there's nothing like working with a professional photojournalist. These pros are skilled at capturing multiple story elements within one single frame. This can make or break a first impression. This extends to PR as well. If you provide the press with high quality photos and videos to accompany your story pitch, that can dramatically increase your chance of making it into a media story on air, in print, or online. The Flock and Rally team loves to help clients level up on their branding, and they have seen time and time again the positive business outcomes for clients who invest in the visual arts. Find Flock and Rally, yep, that's Flock like Flock of Seagulls, and Rally like a pep rally at flockandrally.com. So how did Amy make her way to Charleston, South Carolina? She felt like Charleston was a city that had resources in place to help her grow, but did not have a service of its own that aligned with the vision that she had. These two characteristics are important for anyone to consider when deciding to relocate their business or career. I wouldn't have moved anywhere where I didn't think that I could work in social justice issues. That was a part of my consideration in moving to Charleston. I had a couple other cities I was interested in moving, but I felt like they just didn't have the sort of you know, fabric that I needed to, to have a career in this space. So it was definitely really important to me, but it wasn't as sort of like well thought out enough to say, oh, I want to work right in the South on social justice issues. I always think it's just interesting, like my age right now, you know, sort of like coming to the, like the crescendo of my career happens to be, you know, 10 years into a project I've been working on, which happens to also collide with, um, you know, going to be the biggest emphasis on criminal justice reform, you know, in our lifetimes. So I, I find like there's just so much like serendipity to, to my career choice and where I am right now. It doesn't pass me by. I'm appreciative every day. I said early on, I just want to have like on the day when I was, uh, you know, waiting tables and just trying to get enough money to get this whole thing off the ground. I remember saying and thinking to myself often, like, I just want to have the opportunity to see, right? Like, I just, I just want to have a chance. You know, and I still find myself sometimes. And so now I find myself in two places. One is I'm so grateful I had the chance, regardless of how it, it ends up. Mm-hmm. Win, lose, or draw. Like I have, I got the opportunity, and I'm so grateful for that fact. And then I also look forward at the things that you know my whole team and I are now working to accomplish. And I find myself thinking the same thing again. Like, oh man, I just hope I get the chance. When you know, win, lose, or draw. I just hope I get the chance to just see. Now that she has established herself in the city. Her next goal is making sure that its impact can be felt by future generations. You mentioned you have a larger team now. Are you mainly focused here in South Carolina or is there a vision to to grow or scale the the work that you're doing, the framework um, and the impact? We're based in Charleston. I would say that's, you know, our, our home base. We also have a second location in Columbia that we just opened up back in October. That's been my work and the focus of my work for the last two years. I knew that we, after a few years of doing this, the, the first few years were really hard. Startup years are hard. <laughs> yes. We, we had a lot of problems. And I really, that's one of the reasons I said I'm so grateful for having to start with no dollars and work it out is because I see that sometimes having money early on causes more problems when people have problems than they 
have a lot of investment. And so it's just like harder to pivot. Well, we were just so small and the, the investment was so minor that we were able to really pivot out of those problems. Those years were really tough. And then once we got through like 15, 16 and 17, we started cresting into like 18 and 19. We started kind of realizing like we had pulled some of the right levers and we kind of had something special. We started having people travel here from other states to kind of see what we were doing. And there just was, it was clear, I think, that there was something going on here. And so we started asking ourselves as a team, what do we want to do with this? Are we okay with just having this shop? Like we, I know some other organizations around the country that are doing cool work in this space and have kind of opted to not replicate and just say, we're going to, you know, offer best practices to other organizations. We'll offer tours for people to come through, but we're not going to actually you know, try to replicate ourselves, right? That each each city has its own culture. They have their own challenges. They have their own fabric, right? And it isn't up to us to kind of dive in and and, and be a McDonald's. Um, and so we kind of had to, we were like faced with like a choice of which direction do we want to go? And ultimately, I really wanted to see if this could be more than just like a unicorn program down here in Charleston. Right. And kind of what kind of lessons could be learned around this model in replicating in different places, right? Not that it needs to be the same each place, but if we take the basic building blocks, what can we learn? And is it possible to take this same kind of framework and take it to other cities? And so we made that decision in 2019. And so, like I said, I've been working towards that for the last couple of years and just opened our uh, our location in Columbia. Um, and so now we're going through our sort of startup and implementation challenges in Columbia, which feel familiar. They're just sort of a different flavor. And then we're heading towards opening a third location in the upstate South Carolina, possibly Greenville in 2023. And we're really moving towards having an evaluation of the program. It's really important to me that we evaluate the program and know um, to the extent we can um, that the program truly is working to reduce recidivism. And one of the things we need to do is to get bigger, have have a bigger data source and then bring on an evaluation partner. And so that's kind of the, the goal, the next goal that's in front of us. Before this venture, I was in research and evaluation um, and contraceptive access. It's so fascinating when you start to look for evaluation and data on different social justice issues, and it just doesn't even exist. Everyone defines the measures differently. And so that's a whole nother can of worms. It's really hard. It's really, really tough. Everyone defines recidivism differently. You know, people coming out of prison have different risks to reoffend. So they even by themselves are just like not static. You know, it's like it's pretty complex. And it's really important to me that in my life, I push the field forward in whatever way I can and make a contribution that can be used. And so if we have an evaluation and we don't have positive results like that, I want that to be public and I want to document all the processes. So it's not a black box of what happened or, you know, like I want to be able to gift what we're doing to the field because I really appreciate some organizations that did that before me. And I was able to really draw heavily on some in-depth evaluations and design accordingly. And we do have a lot of research in this space that shows us what works. We just don't have a lot in terms of how to apply it effectively in operations in in the community. We don't have any program that's considered an an evidence-based program as according to like our national standards or Department of Justice because we haven't haven't had rigorous evaluations. And so you you have to have multiple rigorous evaluations and multiple locations. And while we have done that in the juvenile justice space, we have not done that in the adult space. And so we're trying to like push out against that. And we're trying to reach that kind of goal 
And so that other people can come, other people will come in behind us or next to us. We just, we want to push that and say like, we can do better. We can reach that standard. And once we do, it's like, it's like the mile, right? People will come in faster and be better. This project is clearly doing amazing work, but it has still been a challenge for Turn 90 to find funding. This has not stopped them from continuing to push forward because they believe in the work that they are doing. Amy feels like fundraising is her full-time job, which can be tough while she is also trying to interact with the prisoners who go through their program and prepare them for the workforce. The takeaway from this, though, is that not having an ample amount of money in the beginning should not deter you from doing something that you're passionate about. We are not eligible for the federal funding that does exist because we're not big enough. Um, Oftentimes, it's very prescriptive, the kinds of things that can be eligible for funding, and we're not, we don't fit into any of those boxes. Right. You know, running the social enterprise, you know, just, we don't fit into, we don't fit into an easy box. Yeah, fundraising is my full-time job. And that's, you know, tough when I'm also trying to, you know, run a program and run a high quality program. Let's take a step back and discuss the program itself. What does a day in the life look like for a man going through the Turn 90 program? Amy feels like they can succeed with these tasks because they hire men who have gone through Turn 90 themselves to supervise future participants. There's 13 of us on staff and five of us are formerly incarcerated program graduates. So part of our approach to this work is to hire people that have gone through the program and understand the men at a level that we never will and work on the front lines of the organization. They're not the only people delivering frontline services, but they're there delivering them alongside, you know, you know, non-program graduates. So that's just really important. I think first and foremost, to kind of understand about us that that's, that's, that's a critical way that we feel like um, we'll engage the population that we're working with. We run everything here in house. The guys come in and they, they can come here as early as maybe seven 30. The actual work doesn't start until nine. So we'll mm-hmm. have start wandering in. We work out of a 6,000 square foot building, both here in Charleston and in Columbia. Our building in Charleston used to be a prison that's um, given to us by Department of Corrections to use. But both of our buildings are similar and that they're mixed use spaces. We have offices, we have classrooms, and then we have a manufacturing space, so a warehouse, which um, houses our social enterprise. So when the guys first enroll in the program, they come in at nine o'clock, they clock in. Again, like I said, everybody's paid hourly wages to work here. They clock in and nine o'clock classes start. So between nine and 10.30 and then 10.45 and 12, our participants, our students are in the classroom. They clock out for a lunch break and they come back in the afternoon and they work in the print shop. For us, okay. it's really important to have everything together in one building. Sometimes right. people work with people out of prison and they, they, they use temp agencies or they have offsite work experiences. For us, part of what we believe really helps people change their identity, which is a super important part of behavior change in general, is having being influenced right by the people that are around you. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's really important to have a lot of contact and a lot of uh, opportunities to engage with our participants in sort of a controlled environment. After about 10 weeks of doing this, half in the classroom, half in the afternoon, we start moving our guys more to full-time employment. And at that point, they're working full-time in the print shop, and we're starting to prepare them for job placement. At about 16 weeks, we're looking for employers that have available openings and are interested in hiring our graduates. We have quite a few businesses around town that are really committed to hiring our graduates. We don't have to do a lot of work around job development, actually. 
most of our work comes with helping our guys get ready to, um, to succeed in the workforce. So that's like the bulk of our work. And then once they go out to the workforce, if we've done our job, they do a great job. And then the employer wants to come back and hire from us again. We spend minimal amount of time actually recruiting employers. We spend all of our time recruiting print shop customers because yeah. we run a print shop business. So we do lots of marketing around keeping the guys engaged here. And then we do all of our work around, you know, individual support in the classroom here. According to Amy, the ultimate goal of Turn 90 is to help people stabilize the environment they come from, rather than pushing them into something new where they might not be able to fully succeed. Many men who come out of the prison system do not have access to or knowledge of resources that other people in society may take for granted. A lot of times people think that people coming out of prison can just plug into already existing community resources. Like they can just go to the Department of Employment and Workforce, right? Or they can go to the one stop and just sit behind a computer and start plugging away at like available like job opportunities or that they can just like enroll at Trident Tech and they're like free CDL program, right? Or that they can just like search the web. The people that we, that we work with are not typically stable enough to be able to engage with those community services in effective ways. So it's like the opportunities are quote there on paper, but they're not real opportunities for the guys we work with because there's a gap. We don't push people from place to place to place. Someone comes here, we don't say like, hey, go here for this and here for this and here for this. We say, you're here. Yeah. And you figure it out and you don't have to go anywhere. Right. And if we, if you need a legal service, we'll make that call for you. If you need a medical appointment, we'll help you navigate that. And we'll take you over there if you need it. So it's like a place for people to just like land. And I think that that's like really key part of helping people succeed after prison that we're not doing a good job at. Amy believes that you are supposed to grow in life and learn to overcome challenges. And that is why she continues to take leaps in her venture. During our conversation, it was clear that making money was not what motivated her, but rather seeing the impact she has had on the lives of those around her. It's important to me that we continue to push ourselves because the need is, is great and it's out there. And I think that's the point of life, right? It's like to get better. The point yeah. of life is like to have challenges, right? Like it's like overcoming challenges and figuring out like complex problems. And, you know, I, that's part of, I think, living a meaningful life for me you know, and to the extent that I can do that to help other people and like break barriers and like to do cool new things. Like that's, it's so fun. Like I say that around here all the time, like, man, it's so cool. You know, even when it's hard, like we get, we're getting the opportunity to basically like be on like a journey. Being on a journey means that you need to have like mountains to climb. It's kind of, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't never saw myself as, I mean, a leader, right? And I just saw myself as like being motivated to work with this population and try to solve this problem. I never saw myself as uh, particularly like, you know, as a leader, but, you know, I've had to reframe that for myself and I just have to own where I'm at in the organization. And, and, you know, I, there's definitely been times where I kind of wanted to like skirt sideways because I really love the actual, like the programming and I like the research and evaluation. And I'm like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to be the CEO. Like, I don't want to do fundraising. Like, I don't want to be the face. Yeah. I mean, as much as that, you know, it's like even having these conversations, you know, it's like, that's my job, you know? And that's like, I had to own that, that that's my role. And I see my staff like come on my team. I mean, I've had staff move. I had one of my staff moved from his whole family from Charlotte to be here. I'm having my second staff move to Columbia to open that center for me. You know, and it's like, you just see these people like throw their lot in with yours and you just have to own it. You know, you just have to own who you are at the end of the day in the organization and the fact that people are willing to follow you. And I would say like, that's, 
one of, has been one of the most surprising things about this is that I really got into this because I really care about people in prison. And I really, really want to show that we can do so much better, right? It's like a show and prove thing. Like, come on, y'all, like we can do better. The most surprising thing along the way has been how impactful it has been to have a staff and to see their lives get impacted by the work. It's crazy. It's like, it's like writing a story and then watching other characters come in and then your story becoming their life story. And like, that's like mind blowing to me. And it just started kind of like slowly happening as I hired one staff and I hired second staff. And I kind of like realized like, wow, this is not just my story. It's like our collective story and it's going to be their story forever. Right. Like my dream became part of their life forever and their kid's life. You get so busy doing the work and, you know, to be able to, to stand back and watch how other people are effective and can jump into your dream and, and grow it. And the excitement um, is what it's all about. It is. It's crazy. And like, I have this, like right now, right in front of me, I have this like vision board that I created. I'm like really visual and I like to like draw out my future and stuff. And I have this like vision board sitting right in front of me and it has all, it has the U S and it has like little centers, like in all the States, you know, and like, regardless of like, whether those are going to be turn 90 centers or another organization that is modeled right after this. Like I like just like, I'm focused on that and all the different staff that I have here in those centers across the country. And like the impact that we can make here is it really is. Um, it's really like mind blowing what, what the potential for this project is. It's really cool. So how can our listeners get involved with the Turn 90 program? We do run a screen printing business. We print not just for Charleston or Columbia or South Carolina. We print and ship. We really rely on community partners to order printing from us so that we can provide transitional work and really a new opportunity at life for, for the men that we serve. How do we find the print shops? We are have our web presence. So uh, turn90.com, all spelled out, T-U-R-N-N-I-N-E-T-Y.com. And you can get a quote right from there. show today to discuss the incredible work she's doing and sharing her story here on Venturing Voices. Remember that you too are a badass and capable of getting shit done in your community. If you are interested in learning more about our community, Femex Columbia, you can check out our website or follow us on social media. Thank you to our sponsors for helping make this podcast possible and make sure to subscribe and tune into future episodes with more badass women from South Carolina. Once again, I'm Nell and thank you for listening to Venturing Voices. Thank you.